0: Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Ukraine, the contemporary art scene and the ethics of photojournalism in war. Plus, Chris Burden's unrealised projects and FN Souza's self-portrait as Saint Sebastian. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I talked to Svitlana Byadareva, a Ukrainian art historian, artist and curator, about the community of artists in her home country and how they're responding to war. Also on Ukraine, Tom Seymour talks to the photographer Mark Neville, who's been based in the Ukrainian capital Kiev for the past 18 months and left the city last week, about a photojournalistic series he made in Ukraine, about ethical approaches to reportage and about the effects of documenting war-torn countries. Also this week, as a book is published featuring Chris Burden's unrealised projects, I talked to Jory Finkel about the American performance and installation artist's extraordinary imagination. And in this week's Work of the Week, Jane Allison, curator of the Barbican Art Gallery in London's new exhibition Post-War Modern, discusses one of the key works in the exhibition, FN Souza's Mr Sebastian. A reminder that to keep up with all the art newspaper's latest stories, you can download our app for iOS and Android, which you can find in the App Store or Google Play. And do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, it's more than a week since the Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine, but what does this mean for the community of artists in the country? In recent years, much contemporary art from Ukraine has been marked by the Maidan Revolution or Revolution of Dignity in 2014, Russia's annexation of Crimea later that year, and the war that has raged in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine ever since. Svitlana Biadarova is an art historian, artist and curator who co-organised the exhibition At the Front Line, Ukrainian Art 20 to 2019, shown in Mexico in 2019 and Canada in 2020. Based in Mexico City, Svetlana's is also the author of a recent book on contemporary Ukrainian and Baltic art. I spoke to her about the artist community in her home country, the work they've made in recent years and how they're responding as Russian forces attack. Svetlana, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I wanted to begin by asking you Have you heard from artists who are currently in Ukraine over the past week?
1: Uh, Yes, yes. uh, I'm uh, in contact with many of the artists who are now in Ukraine. And uh, now they have a really difficult uh, situation, many of them. Some of the artists, they uh, managed to leave uh, the hot uh, places like Kiev and Kharkiv and to move uh, towards Western Ukraine or towards Polish border but many of them they stay inside uh, Kiev and Kharkiv and that's not only because of uh, impossibility to go out because there is such a possibility but many of them they have uh, quite strong uh, civil positions that they need to stand, and help uh, in any way in the way of volunteering in the way of defending or even documenting of all these uh, traumatic events and uh, kind of performing their duty as uh, as artists, but also as uh, documentary practitioners.
0: Okay, and let's talk about that documentary practitioner aspect, because the fact is that you've written extensively about this, that documentary has actually become a, a particularly notable form in Ukraine recently in terms of artists, almost as a response to the conditions of war which have existed in Ukraine over the past decade or so.
1: Uh, Yes, I I have written several texts on this topic, uh, and the idea is that Ukraine, uh, after 2013 and the protests in the Maidan, then the annexation of Crimea, and then the beginning of the war with Russia, experienced very strong necessity to document the ongoing events. And artists took this responsibility, and that's how occurred the documentary turn in Ukrainian art. So we can speak about photography, we can speak about short films which are on the border between cinema and contemporary art. We can speak about media art and we can speak about even new genres uh, like, uh, for example, reportage art that uh, appears with uh, the beginning of uh, the violent events in the east of Ukraine.
0: Can you say more about the kinds of work? Because as you say, there's a very, very broad range there. But I mean, how straightforwardly documentary are they? What kind of subjects do people deal with? What kind of subjects are the artists approaching? Uh,
1: For example, if we speak about the work of Ukrainian filmmaker Peter Arminovsky, he comes from Donbass. He uh, needed to leave Donbass in 2014 because he was uh, a active there in uh, the organization of democratic elections. And so he was blacklisted by all this, uh, uh, pro-Russian groups uh, who entered uh, in an occupied part of uh, the Donetsk region. And he continued working from uh, outside the area, but approaching to the area from the side of Ukrainian territory. And he was filming uh, the consequences and uh, the very process and the consequences of uh, military actions to the, in those towns in the near the demarcation line. And his work became very important precisely for, for this kind of combination of documentary approach and very personal approach, because he's attached to the theory and he knows people from the theory, and these people, they tell their own and personal stories. And another example is uh, the work by uh, Evgenia Belaruset, who is a photographer and, and a writer. Uh, she traveled to the borderline, with the occupied territories uh, to small minor towns, and she was documenting lives there and the routine that uh, was overshadowed by these war conditions, and generally the economic and cultural uh, conditions in which these people uh, li- live, which are not uh, very good conditions, and uh, with a big focus on the life of women, uh, female minors. In these projects, uh, uh you know like doc- documentary becomes a background for something more for a story that has to be told and uh, this story is not a story of one person but of group of people who are finding themselves in certain difficult situation so th- this is the trend that i would say uh ukrainian documentary art is following now. And, uh, for example, now I know that Virginia Belarusic is in Kiev and uh, she is trying to document uh, the ongoing uh, aggression of the war and uh, the ongoing events. I, I still don't know what kind of project uh, it's going to be uh, because, of course, now it's very difficult to publish anything uh, like that, like, like to document the, the destructions, for example, in the city is, uh, is not good from the point of view of military defense. So, uh, these projects keep on going. As well as, for example, Aleftina Kahidze who documented uh, uh, the life of her mother in uh, in the Donbass. Her mother needed to stay there for all the time while uh, this territory was occupied. Aleftina couldn't visit her. And uh, the worst part of the story is that her mother needed to travel to receive her pension from Ukrainian government to cross the demarcation line uh, every month. And in one of these times, she died because of these enormous queues and enormous uh, bureaucratic, uh, chaotic procedure that uh, were needed to cross uh, the border. So now Aleftina also is working on several uh, graphic projects that reflect on the current state of war and already the bombs and shelling that occur just next to her house. And her house is uh, near Kiev.
0: That's extraordinary. So one of the factors that you've clearly identified then is that the impulse towards documentary which emerged in the revolution of 2013 to 14 continues today and they're seeing themselves as essential in terms of reporting on current events it's not just about reflecting the wider culture but reflecting events as they happen it seems extraordinarily courageous that they're doing that
1: yes yes i I agree with you and Uh, It is important that artists, even if uh, they had to leave their home places sometimes, even if they're displaced, that they they have this privilege to voice the opinion of the society and to represent the life of the society. And uh, this is one of uh, their kind of big responsibilities that they can perform precisely right now.
0: One of the things that you've also stressed is that as well as bringing Ukrainian art to Wider attention, they're also bringing Ukrainian national identity to wider attention, and that means the complexity of Ukrainian national identity. Can you say more about that?
1: I believe that Ukrainian identity is very multifaceted. It is uh, something that cannot be just described by means of language or by means belonging to ter- certain tradition. Because, of course, m- many of Ukrainians, they are Russian speakers. Many of Ukrainians, they are Ukrainian speakers, but they are still Ukrainian. And that doesn't have anything to do with... Uh, these claims of Russia that uh, they were going to save Russian speakers in Ukraine. No, I'm a Russian speaker, and no one, uh, no one needs to save me <laughs> from my country. But I think that this war is something where this uh, identity is being crystallized and kind of is kind of being visible and seen. So that it's based not on uh, kind of uh, formal characteristics, but rather is based on. Uh, common values. And these values are core values of uh, peace, of democracy, of, of freedom, freedom of speech, for example. And this is what actually envelopes and characterizes Ukrainian identity now.
0: I was intrigued by something that you wrote in the essay for the exhibition that you curated in Mexico City, where you're talking to us from now called At the Front Line. In that essay that you said that the artistic community was... United, and you say, and I'll read it. Uh, artists who were once divided into right and left camps became united in their resistance to external aggression. Can you say more about that?
1: Artists from different camps and different points of view and perspectives—they try to help in some way to, to the society to which they belong, and also to to work with the topics. Uh, in a way, creating critique from different points of view. And that's what we were trying to show in the exhibition. In Mexico, That there is no one single perspective. There are different perspectives. And these perspectives might take a different kind of political point of views, uh, I mean, internal political point of view. That's certain points of history. Like the history of Ukraine is incredibly difficult, is very traumatic, and is very complex. And it can be different attitudes to this precise moments in this in, in this history but this doesn't affect our desire to uh, construct something new in in the moment that we are living now and in this way yes they, i i can say that artists they're kind of united in the Ukrainian society i have discussed this with colleagues at um, the association of uh, eastern european studies in uh, in november at the conference and uh, which is actually the opposition and which is actually right and left in Ukraine and kind of everything is so so messed up. And the answer of one of my colleagues was very interesting, that actually we have uh, active right and active left politically. Politically and also if you speak about art activism. And we have completely inert center, people who are belonging to this idea that they cannot change anything. So basically, the, this tension inside Ukraine is where left and right are united in a way, you know, because they, are, they have active positions. I don't know how relevant it is to um, artistic field. I think, yes, it is true. But uh, political position, especially in such crisis of war as now, doesn't mean much. Everybody wants to defend their country.
0: And and also, of course, in that show and in your writings generally, you've pointed to the fact that there are artists across Ukraine. Yes, Kiev is an inevitable centre, but there are artists that you have worked with who are in different cities like Kharkiv, for instance. Can you say how diverse is the artistic community across the country?
1: I was really impressed about how uh, the art from the East appeared on the artistic scene in Ukraine in, in the last eight years. Uh, no one knew that uh, such brilliant and very rich scene existed in Lugansk oblast in and in Donetsk oblast uh, in Crimea. But uh, when the war started and the artists started moving from 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 those areas to Kiev or to Lviv or to uh, other parts of the of the country, they started creating projects that uh, are some kind of, I would say really they define the the Ukrainian cultural scene now. So art from the east of the country became the definitive for it. Also because uh, they managed to describe the events as uh, eyewitnesses of these events. And, and they got uh, a lot of impulse for creating these new projects. Uh, I was uh, recently interviewing five artists for uh, October Journal published by MIT Press. They have this new section of uh, Art Communities at Risk. And so soon it will be published. And precisely, I was interviewing uh, five artists who needed to change their location because uh, their hometowns in in Crimea or in Donbass were occupied and they needed to leave. From the conversations with them, I understood that actually uh, kind of this transplantation, let's say, of the topics uh, from the occupied territories into the rest of Ukraine and then the discussion of these topics is something absolutely new that... Uh, didn't exist b- before t- 2014. It's uh, some kind of decentralization, but also is an exchange, a more intensive exchange that, of course, will, with the time, and it is already now, uh, will produce uh, new types of art, probably, new movements, and a wide range of new topics to discuss. Because when there is exchange, of course, there, there is more possibilities to create.
0: And of course, again, something that you've referred to, and I believe it's been called Ukrainian Renaissance, is that actually after the revolution, and while the war in the East has been going on and the annexation of Crimea happened, you said that actually in in six years since the revolution, the changes in Ukrainian art and the kind of developments and the impetus of development in Uh, ukrainian art was more substantial than in the entire period between independence and that moment can you say something about that was it purely the sort of revolutionary impulse that triggered that or were there other factors
1: Uh, there, there was certainly a number of factors one was the revolutionary impulse that triggered it the necessity to reflect on the traumatic events of the war But also, finally, Ukraine received its own impulse for the institutional development because institutional development is very important in support of the art and in support of the decentralization of art. That art is not just based on Kiel, but in all the cities. And in 2018, for example, a governmental organization called uh, Ukrainian Cultural Foundation was created Uh, with the aim to support uh, artistic projects of different types and of different levels, private initiatives, organizational, international collaborations in cinema, in uh, art, in in music, in cultural heritage. And this uh, possibility was the first one since uh, the independence of Ukraine and even before. And uh, this was something that pushed new initiatives emerging in different parts of Ukraine. And what is more important is that more initiatives became emerging in the demarcation line between occupied territories and Ukraine. And these projects led by local non-governmental organizations, they aimed precisely to involve people into some activities that would help dialogue exchange and uh, maybe study together or, or maybe create together. And uh, this was one of, of the really important moments. Another important initiative that emerged after the Maidan was uh, Ukrainian Institute that also supports uh, projects in the countries outside Ukraine, Ukra- Ukrainian projects in collaboration with different countries. And they realized uh, several good exhibitions. They realized uh, a wonderful exhibition about Ukrainian war in, in Vienna uh, with kind of a very interesting presentation of Ukrainian artists, and so on. So we we see that uh, basically renaissance uh, appears not only from the goodwill of people and uh, the inspiration of the artist, but also there should be an institutional support. And then the result that we can see already in, in the last eight years.
0: And of course, one must inevitably be concerned now that those artists' very lives are under threat and those institutions are under threat themselves. We're hearing about museums collections being hidden away. Of course, it would be impossible for many of the institutions to continue practicing. So tell me what your thoughts are now about the events right now and how that's affecting those communities that you're talking about.
1: It's very difficult to see what is going on in Ukraine because the information is very few. Uh, Because uh, also there is this call from the government, from the defense forces, not to document extensively, to put it in uh, in, in the social networks. Uh, in order to avoid kind of new attacks. They're in, in this precisely tactical moments of, of defense. And, uh, but from what appears, it looks just horrible because they've destroyed already several historical buildings, one in Chernigov. Undoubtedly, they destroyed some historical buildings in Kiev. We don't know which ones. Uh, they destroyed a museum in Ivan Kiev which was an archaeological museum. It had a collection of uh, policia icons. It, it had a collection of Mari- Maria Primachenko works, which is a major Ukrainian-naive artist. But uh, there is a hope that actually that collection was saved of your works, but it's not clear yet. And so on. I believe uh, every museum developed their own uh, plan of evacuation of works, and they are either hiding them somewhere in a very, very safe place that is not that easy to shell, or probably they, they evacuated them uh, to some other parts, uh, maybe to the west of Ukraine. But uh, I must say that the way how it looks now, everybody is very worried about Ukrainian cultural heritage. Because Ukraine has churches from uh, 11th century. It has Sofia Cathedral. It has, a, it has a kind of many really valuable and uh, something unique in, in its own way. And now, because of the Russian aggression, all of these treasures are under uh, threat of destruction.
0: And finally, do you have any message to the listeners to this podcast about what they can do to help?
1: There is a page called Razum for Ukraine. It's a foundation that works since 2014 and they deliver emergency help to Ukrainian citizens. And there are many uh, smaller initiatives that uh, accept humanitarian help in, in different ways. And also it is important actually to distribute the information about uh, the, the war in Ukraine and kind of uh, to, to avoid the distortion of it because uh, there, is, there is a lot of misinformation on the networks and it is important to read correct sources and to, to, to transmit that correct information. In terms of uh, Ukrainian art, I just want to say that uh, art usually helps to recover from any trauma And uh, art in Ukraine, I believe, will help to restore this peace eventually and to create maybe some new meanings and new identities on the basis of all all this uh, destruction and to raise to something better. And honestly, I hope that this war will finish very soon because uh, it's already quite unbearable to, to Ukrainian society.
0: Thank you, Svitlana, for saying that and for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The foundation that Svitlana mentioned is called Razom for Ukraine, and you can find it at razomforukraine.org. That's R A Z O M for Ukraine.org. Svitlana's website is SvitlanaBiadariva.com, and you can find the link in the description of this podcast. Now, distressing images emerging from Ukraine reflect the crucial role of photojournalism in bringing us the realities of war. The British photographer Mark Neville, who in the past has been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and for the Deutsche Börse Prize, has been based full-time in Ukraine for the last 18 months, after travelling there for many years. In 2015 he began a photojournalistic series documenting life in the country, with imagery ranging from people holidaying on Odessa's beaches to soldiers on the front line in the eastern part of the country. Tom Seymour, Associate Editor at the Art Newspaper, caught up with him this week to ask about his experiences in Ukraine, about the ethics of photography in war zones, and about how he's been affected by his experiences.
2: Mark Neville, thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to us today. You escaped Kiev last week, your home's there by Maiden Square, and and you drove for 24 hours to the west of Ukraine when the bombs started to fall. Can you talk us through that experience for
3: us? Sure. Well, I, you know, I moved from London to Kiev in October 2020. So I'd been there for about a year and a half. When I say moved, I mean really moved. My home, my studio, everything, my possessions. Um, And I lived in that apartment with my partner, Lukyria, a Ukrainian woman. And uh, basically I woke up on the morning of the 24th on Thursday to the sound of an explosion and sirens and then I had a very long day trying to decide what it was that I wanted to do, that we needed to do. And then I guess around five o'clock, um, I got a report from somebody that uh, the Russians were planning to target the presidential home, which is in central Kiev. And it's about 50 metres away from where I live, which sounds terribly posh. It's not, but it's, it's very close. So we left. We managed to get a lift in a van with about four other people and we left about seven o'clock on the first day of the conflict, and drove for twenty-four hours to western Ukraine to Lviv, uh, where where we are at the moment.
2: And how have you been over the last week? How has your emotional state been?
3: Um, well, I you know I have I have been to war zones before. I mean, I've been to the front line here in, in here in Ukraine actually on a number of occasions. I've been to Donbass since two thousand and fifteen, and I've also spent three months with the British Army in Helmut, Afghanistan during their time there. So. You know, I do have some experience of trauma and wars and so forth, but nevertheless, it's extremely exhausting. And part of the problem is that you face all these kind of moral, ethical dilemmas all the time. Like, who do I help? Who am I responsible for? Am I responsible for my partner? Am I responsible for these people who are now homeless? Am I responsible for picking up a gun and shooting a Russian? You know, where can I best put my efforts? Is it better that I leave the country and try and help people remotely? Should I fundraise? Should I donate blood? You know, And your mind kind of goes off in a hundred different directions all at once every day, trying to decide what the best thing to do is. And of course, there is no clear-cut answer to those questions. Um, so it's, it's extremely punishing. I wouldn't say I'm scared, but it's just about trying to make those right decisions all the time.
2: Ukraine from Boris Miklov onwards and, well, Previous to, as a real proud history of photojournalism. How would you describe the photojournalistic community in Ukraine? How have they responded to, to this incredible crisis?
3: Well, one thing to say is that, you know, there's a law now that if you're aged between the age of 18 and 60, if you're a male, you're not allowed to leave the country. So many of my friends who should have left the country have stayed, many of my photographer friends. And of course, they have no choice. So, uh, what are they doing? They're doing what I'm doing, which is working. They're picking up a camera and they're trying to document what's going on. But I know the community here. They're extremely dedicated and quite brilliant, I have to say. Uh, And one of the things I've tried to do over the past few days is draw attention to the fact that so many foreign photographic crews are coming to Ukraine now. And I'm like, why? You know, we've got this incredible wealth of photographic talent here in Ukraine. And surely it's cheaper and safer to just do some research, pick up a phone, call one of these incredible photographers and just say, listen, can you work for, I don't know, New Yorker for a week or Washington Post or Vanity Fair or whoever it is, and send us some material. And I tell you, the material will be better. Not least of all, because these people actually know the language, they know their country, they know the situation, and they understand it. So if I understand it correctly, news is about accurate reporting. It's about trying to find the truth. The best way to get the truth is to work with people who understand it, locals. And these people are not only brilliant photographers, they understand what's going on because they've been living with war in their own bloody country since 2014. They've had it on a daily basis, not in Kiev, but 600 kilometres away in Donbass. So I'm lost for words that there needs to be a complete change in the way we think about reporting on conflict and reporting in general, I would say. They call it parachute journalism. Do you think that still has a place? Of course. I mean, there's there's an element of objectivity that's brought to a situation if it's not happening in your own backyard. And there's definitely a place for it, but it's totally imbalanced at the moment. And also it's about helping people. If a war happens, the most important thing is to support people. Everything else is secondary. So why on earth are these European and American media Platforms spending tens of thousands of dollars on sending people abroad when they could pay a journalist who needs the money in Ukraine, and that money will keep them alive and they'll get better material. It's completely ridiculous. It makes me furious.
2: Okay, so you moved to Ukraine in 2015. That was shortly after the hybrid war began, uh, which you referenced. Yes. A book that you've just published, what, 10 days ago, Stop Tanks of Books. It's a portrait of Ukraine throughout the course of a hybrid war. Talk us about this project. I wouldn't call it conflict photography. It's social documentary, maybe.
3: Well, you know, it's, it's a strange story because I first came to Ukraine because of a project I did in Britain called Battle Against Stigma. So I'd spent three months with the paratroopers in Afghanistan during 2011 as a kind of official war artist sent by the Imperial War Museum, not by a Not by a newspaper, not by a gallery, but by the Imperial War Museum. So I came back from that experience in 2011 with post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I recovered, but it took me a while. It was a process and I decided I wanted something positive to come out of it. So I made this book called Battle Against Stigma to try and raise awareness about mental health issues in the British military and to encourage veterans and soldiers who are suffering with PTSD, with adjustment disorder, to come forward and seek professional help. So I made this book, it was banned by the British government. In other words, it was, it was printed in Spain in an edition of 1500 copies. The first consignment of 500 copies came over from Spain and was seized by UK border force in 2015. And I was on television talking about this seizure, I was on the radio newspapers. And to this day, I've never seen that consignment of books. Another consignment came via a different route, and that came to my studio safely in in London, and I was able to spend all summer sending it out to homeless centres, charities, mental health institutions, um, prisons, all the places where you end up if you develop PTSD and you don't get treated. So out of the blue, I suddenly get this email from Kiev Military Hospital in Ukraine. I'd never been to Ukraine before, saying we heard about your book. Do you have a Ukrainian language version of it? And I was like, wow, no, I don't actually. But I was so touched that my own country had tried to ban my book, whereas this post-Soviet country, in inverted commas, was so forward thinking about the treatment of their own veterans who were coming back from Donbass with terrible psychological damage, uh, were reaching out to me and saying, help us. You know, I was like, wow. So I had the book, the British book, battle against stigma, translated into Ukrainian, made into a PDF, and I sent it to them. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go and visit them. These people deserve a visit. So I went to Kiev Military Hospital, and I just fell in love with the country, you know, with the people, with the food, with the architecture, with the culture, with the history. And I saw this incredible bravery and resilience. And humility that we were witnessing now on the news reports, you know, uh, in the defense of their own country. And then I would come back all the time, you know, every time I had an opportunity to visit Kiev or Ukraine again, I would take it. And whether that was for work or to do an exhibition or to do a talk about my work or whatever it was, and then I guess in about 2020, I realised, you know, what am I doing living in London, where I could be living where my heart is, you know. But I saw this coming in 2015, and the book that I've made, which has just been published and released, has been in the pipeline. Since 2015, I had this idea to make a book about the war, send it out in a targeted dissemination to a targeted audience of diplomats, politicians, celebrities and negotiators, all the people I thought could help Ukraine in its fight for independence and defeat Russian aggression. Uh, So I had this the concept, and a lot of the content uh, already finished by 2016-17. And in 2018, I was ready to publish.
2: Difficult question, maybe you've spent many, many years creating a book, which I imagine you, you thought very, very carefully about the ethics behind this portrait. For a lot of photographers that are flying into the country and a lot of photographers that are photographing war for the first time that are already based in the country, what's your advice to them when it comes to ethical photography, given how much misinformation is flying around the internet, how much propaganda is becoming a key part of this conflict and the information wars and so on? How how do photographers approach this incredible challenge in the right ethical way?
3: Well, I think you've got to put your own safety and the safety of others, at, you know, paramount importance, really. It's just using common sense, being sensitive, uh, looking around you, being aware and acting with respect, you know, and also you've got to find a very good Ukrainian fixer and you've got to really ask yourself, am I actually bringing anything to the table by flying into this war zone? You know it's not enough to think oh it might help my career that's sorry that's not good enough you've got to think what am i actually bringing to the table am i going to bring a fresh perspective am i going to be able to cope am i going to end up actually endangering and being a burden on people around me rather than helping you know so i i would say mostly just taking pictures is not enough of a good reason to go to a war zone and i would strongly argue for people not to do that, in fact. And if they can find a way to support Ukrainian photographers instead, or people uh, living and and working on the ground here in Ukraine, I would say, do that, you know, do the right thing, do the ethical thing, because these people can get it right, let them get it right for you. And, you know, if you want to go and take photographs in the war zone at some point, I'm sure you probably will be able to do that. You know, wars will not end happening, unfortunately. But, you know, you've got to pick and choose how best you can contribute and really examine what your own motivation is for taking photographs. You know, who are you really helping? What are you really trying to change through your photographs? If you just want to get your name in New York Times, please stay away. You know, if you want to really try and change things and you're really committed to some kind of activist approach, then do it. But activism involves uh, ethical responsibility for other people.
2: You mentioned you've experienced post-traumatic stress disorder in your life. A lot of photojournalists on Twitter are saying, I think I might have PTSD. We're, We're discussing amongst ourselves whether we're experiencing PTSD. For someone that might be going through that, not just photojournalists, obviously, but citizens across Ukraine, what's your advice to them?
3: Uh, I would say it's a perfectly normal reaction. When I was in Afghanistan, uh, a soldier came up to me and said, you will be traumatised after this. It's impossible to readjust to civilian life, normal civilian life, after this experience. And this is what worries me, is that we're going to have a whole nation, no matter if everyone survives from now on, from this minute on, there's no more casualties. Nevertheless, the whole nation is going to be traumatised. And that is not to do with inner strength. That's just a fact. That's just a fact of human nature. And that's how trauma works. So please be good to yourselves after this experience is over and recognise that you will all be traumatised.
2: There's quite a lot of comment in um, Western media basically prophesising that a Ukraine are essentially going to, to give up the fight and you know, give in to, to Russian aggression. What's your message to, to people saying that?
3: I would say they're completely deluded. That will never, ever happen. You can have 50 million Russian troops here, this will always remain Ukraine. I don't say that in some kind of jingoistic, chest-thumping way, it's just the case. People here are extremely resilient, extremely proud. And like I said, they're gonna fight for those freedoms that we take for, for granted in the West. They're not going anywhere. Even with an occupying force, it's never gonna work. This will never be Russia. It was Russia several, several hundred years ago, it isn't anymore. It's Ukraine. They have their own language, their own customs, their own sense of humour, their own food. That's not changing.
2: Uh, Mark Neville, thanks for so much for your time and please stay safe
0: out there.
3: Thank you very much, Tom.
0: Mark Neville's Stop Tanks with Books is published by Setanta and Nasraeli Press and priced £50 or $60. Tom Seymour has compiled a list of eight verified photojournalists reporting at this moment on the ground in Ukraine, representing some of the world's most respected media organisations. You can read that and our full coverage of the Russian invasion at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Coming up, we hear about Chris Burden's unrealised projects and FN Souza's Mr Sebastian, but first here are a few of the top stories beyond the Russia-Ukraine war on our website this week. At this week's auctions, new records were set for a number of artists. Rene Magritte's painting, The Empire of Light, hammered for 51 million pounds or 59.4 million with fees at Sotheby's in London on Wednesday, and at Christie's in London on Tuesday, the German expressionist Franz Marc's painting, The Foxes, sold for 37 million pounds or 42.6 million with fees. And the market for young painters continues to be explosive. A student work by Flora Juknovich sold at Christie's for 1.5 million pounds or 1.9 million with against an estimate of 250000 to 350000 while a work by Rachel Jones sold at Sotheby's for £490,000 or £617,000 with fees, almost ten times its low estimate of £50,000. An unknown Claude Monet painting has surfaced at Marks & Spencer or M&S, the British retail chain, as Martin Bailey writes. It's not for sale and has just gone on loan to a gallery at the University of Leeds in Northern England. Autumn at Jufoss from 1884 is unrecorded in the comprehensive Wildenstein catalogue resume of Monet's work. It's almost certainly a major rediscovery, although it's yet to be properly authenticated. M&S and the Leeds Gallery have approached the New York-based Wildenstein Plattner Institute, which authenticates Monet's work, to consider Orto its verdict is likely to be given later this year. And finally, archaeologists from Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History have interpreted the glyphs of an ancient frieze excavated in Oaxaca that offers significant insight into the cultural norms of Zapotec and Mixtec cultures. As Gabriella Angeletti reports, the limestone and stucco frieze was discovered in 2018 in the Atzompa zone of the Monte Alban archaeological region, a UNESCO World Heritage Site built in the 6th century BCE. The glyphs primarily allude to themes related to superstition and social hierarchies, including figurines of monkeys, jaguars and supernatural protective figures and representations of the quincunx, a geometric design that alludes to the four directions and to the centre of the universe, and the quetzal bird, a Mayan and Aztec symbol of nobility or wealth. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Welcome the spring season this March at Christie's New York with three sequential live auctions that feature work by the defining artists of contemporary art. Dig into prints by David Hockney, Andy Warhol and Keith Haring, alongside current headliners Cecily Brown and Damien Hirst, discover top quality works by Ed Ruscha, Jeff Koons and Felix Gonzalez-Torres and complete the series experience with a 19th century landscape by Eugenio Landesio, a newly discovered oil painting by Diego Rivera, and find examples by Wilfredo Lamb, Claudio Bravo and more. Find out more at Christie's.com Welcome back. Now, the Gagosian Gallery has just announced the publication of Poetic Practical, the first book to focus on Chris Burden's unrealised work. It features 67 projects that the Los Angeles-based artist was unable to complete before he died in 2015. I spoke to Jory Finkel, a regular contributor to the art newspaper and the New York Times, based in LA, about the book. Jory, we're going to come on to Chris Burden's unrealized projects soon. But first, I think it would be good to talk about the ones that he did realise. So can we set a bit of the scene? Who is Chris Burden? What were his major works?
4: By the time I moved to L.A. in 2005, Chris Burden was already a really important established artist here and also internationally. Um, and soon he would make a work for LACMA that is not only in front of LACMA, but really defines the museum in a way, and that is Urban Light, where he brought together this cluster of over 100 Art Deco vintage lampposts and arranged them in a certain form, rewired them, and created a really important public art installation in a city that doesn't have much public art. So that was one of the first big projects I got to see him working on. He also created Metropolis for Inside the Museum, which is his Fantastic version of LA. If LA didn't have traffic and had cars whizzing through it all the time, it might look like Metropolis.
0: Yeah, exactly. And of course, the foundation of his work is actually not these grand installations. It came from a place of performance and these really genuinely still shocking performance pieces, right?
4: They were shocking and they were really intense. He didn't like them being described as stunts. Because I think there was an association with like evil Knievel in the 1970s. So it was in the 1970s that he became famous for his performances, starting with a piece that he did in graduate school at UC Irvine called Five Day Locker Piece, where he locked himself in that locker for five days, true to the title, with only access through a pipe or hose, access to water and a pipe or hose to relieve himself. But it was a small locker, two foot by two foot by three foot. So, you know, starting with that, and then right around that time, he also had himself shot in the left shoulder by a friend at fairly close distance, um, but shot with a twenty-two caliber rifle in the name of art. So, so yes, he brought this incredible intensity to his work very early on, starting with the performances.
0: Indeed. So the kind of unrealized projects that are the subject of this book are actually from that period after the performance. So there's this big transition that happens in his work, isn't there? Sort of mid-70s to 80s, where he shifts away from performance, effectively.
4: Absolutely. By the early 80s, he was no longer doing performances, and there's not a single performance piece in the book of unrealized projects. So I asked the director of his estate, Yayoi why weren't there any performances? And she said, we couldn't find any performances in the archive. So there was no evidence that he was planning performances beyond uh, the 1980s.
0: It's really interesting that, isn't it? Do you have any sort of thoughts on why he turned his back on performance in that way? I mean, he always did say that there was a performative element to some of the later work. But why did he stop making performances? He'd made such an impact, you know?
4: My own sense is that he was developing this reputation for being a stuntman in a certain way and that he didn't like that. He was so allergic to that. And he was always very mechanical. He was always building cars and fixing cars. So I also think that there may be a a progression that we see, an evolution that we see, because as his career became more developed and his relationship with Gagosian Gallery became more developed, he actually had the means to build more. That initially... What did he have to work with as a student, his body? And that at some point he did have budgets. Maybe they weren't big enough to realize all of his projects as we learn from this book. But he had the resources to build more. And he was always very mechanically inclined. I mean, so much so that people think of him as an engineer in artist clothing. And I think this book actually shows you why he's not, that he actually leads with the vision. And sometimes the vision doesn't even work from an engineering standpoint, or technical standpoint, or technological standpoint.
0: Just to give an example of the kind of big dreaming, if you like, that's in this book, there is this piece about the American flag. And that seems to me to sum up what you're talking about. He was searching for a kind of a material that didn't even exist, right?
4: Right, right. He had this idea for the fabric workshop, I believe, of creating an American flag sculpture, if you will, but an American flag that would burn and burn and burn without consuming itself, that the fire would always stay lit. And in order to do that, you would need a special kind of material that can burn without burning out, without extinguishing. And, and that material didn't exist as far as he could tell. So he had this idea, but he didn't have the chemistry to realize it
0: you mentioned Metropolis earlier on. So he's really interested in infrastructures of travel and and all those kind of things, right? So tell us about some of the works which relate to that idea of, of fundamental urban infrastructure.
4: One of my favorite is this pneumatic subway that he planned for Gagosian Gallery. His relationship with Larry Gagosian goes very far back. So we were talking about the performances from the 1970s. In 1976, Larry Gagosian's first show anywhere, was in his Los Angeles gallery of Chris Burden's work. We know that he started as a poster dealer, right? But his first show of an artist was, Larry showed Chris Burden's relics, he called them. And that is uh, the relics from these performance pieces. And so one of the fun things that I learned in the reporting of this story is that Larry himself still owns the lock from Five Day Locker piece, and that Jasper Johns owns the bullet from shoot. Amazing. So they go back to 1976. So flash forward to the year 2010, when Larry Gagosian opens this beautiful flagship gallery that we all know on West 24th Street in Chelsea, New York, you know, the defining Chelsea gallery in a way. And my memory is that he opened with Richard Serra, which isn't an easy install. You know, that was a big show and it was not an easy install. The gallery opened in 2009, I should say. By 2010, early the next year, Chris has a proposal for Larry that involves two giant kinetic sculptures. I mean, think about what he was doing with the flying steamroller, trying to get a steamroller off the ground. So two giant kinetic sculptures. And I'd like to dig into your gallery, dig beneath the ground of this beautiful gallery and install a pneumatic subway that would ride in circles and carry people. You get to see in this book, you get to see his sketches and his notes along with these descriptive entries um, that the art historians have prepared. And you see in his notes that it's intended to carry up to 20 people, but he could revise it to carry only eight. <laughs> so he was, you know, he was he was going to be cooperative and collaborative in his, in his thinking about it. But it did involve digging up the foundation of the gallery, which had just been built, and Also, we learned in this book that all the electrical systems for the gallery are underneath the gallery, not in the walls, underneath the building. So this was a big ask of the gallerist who had supported him all of these years. So you get a sense not just of his intensity as an artist, but as a person that he is testing not only the limits of physics in a way, you know, how fast can he make these cars move from Metropolis or can he lift a steamroller in the air? But he's testing his relationships with people, too. And so it was fun to ask Larry Gagosia, you know, why that didn't get made. And, you know, he basically said it wasn't feasible. It wasn't realistic.
0: <laughs> but it's really interesting is because that's riffing on his own work, too, isn't it? There's nice correspondences between the realised and unrealized project. Because, of course, much earlier, he'd gone underground at MoCA, hadn't he?
4: Absolutely. And so this interest in exposing the foundations of these big institutions is important to him. And that's actually one of the really beautiful things about this book as well. In the margins for each project, there's a list of the realized and unrealized projects it's related to. Uh, You know, another example of a fun project is a beam drop that he had planned, I think, in 2008-2008 from Michael Ovitz's home gallery, you know, another really beautiful architectural space designed by Michael Maltin. Home gallery doesn't do it justice. It's a museum, right? That he built a museum for himself up in the hills of Beverly Hills. And Chris proposed, and I believe Michael initiated, you know, would you do something for the gallery? And Chris proposed a beam drop through the roof of this gallery. And he had done beam drops before. So we know where it comes from, that it wasn't a frivolous idea. He had done a beam drop for, you know, Cheem around that time. And beam drops involved hoisting on these cranes a steel I-beam and dropping it to see what happens. But to do it in this, you know, very private, beautiful space is another ask altogether. What's amazing there is that you get to see a little bit of the correspondence and that the conversations continued until 2013 so this wasn't just a provocation these two men were seriously considering a beam drop
0: That's really interesting, because one of the things about him, you talked about that he was resistant to being seen as not serious in some way, as being a showman, or being a prankster, or anything like that. I mean, we're talking about this, i am realised I'm smiling, because it's such a kind of outlandish idea. But it was the seriousness of Chris Burden's approach that that really sort of accompanied all these ideas, didn't it? He was completely deadly serious about doing them.
4: I think so. I think so. I I mean, I was even one of the things I was looking for in the book was a sense of humour, And I don't know that I really found it. The only example that comes close for me is that he had this idea of sending a hamster sailing across the Pacific from some point on the coast to Japan, I think, in its own boat, in its own sailboat designed for the hamster. And that the hamster would be at the helm, you know, holding course, tacking when needed. And you're like, what? What? What is this all about? And it's such a, to me, it seems like such a goofy idea that maybe that was like a softer moment um, that he he knew it wouldn't be possible. But even that, he seemed to take it very seriously or literally that, yes, he was intense and serious and all in.
0: Now tell me, obviously this is, again, we're talking about unrealized projects. They have the blueprints. They have the kind of ideas. Are are any of these projects likely to be built After the fact, you know, because there are lots of like, for instance, Jean-Claude and Christo's foundation says they're not going to build any more of the unrealized projects. That's it. What's the Burden Foundation, the Burden Estate saying?
4: I asked everybody I talked to this question. So there are 67 unrealized projects in the book. You would think maybe four or five of them will come out of the estate in Gagosian in the next 10 or 20 years. They did not say no. They did not say never. But they said they have no plans right now, that there's nothing they're working on from this book. What they are working on, though, is finishing, completing a project that had been in progress in his lifetime that he had actually made for the Tate, I think, in 1999.
0: I remember it well. I wanted to talk about this project. So so I was there in my pre-journalism days. I was at the Tate and I was there every day walking past this extraordinary contraption. So tell us about this work. It's called When Robots Rule, The Two-Minute Airplane Factory.
4: Right. So... If you grew up like me with um, kind of analog toys, you might remember these little toy airplane kits made out of balsa wood, and there's a rubber band to power the plane so that they can actually fly. And Chris must have grown up with them and loved them and probably collected them. He collected so many things like that. And he had the idea that instead of assembling them yourself by hand, he would make a factory This two-minute airplane factory, to assemble them for you, and that ideally by the end, the factory would shoot this airplane into the air. My understanding, and you have to tell me, is that when it was shown at the Tate, it was not functioning at all, and it got pretty good reviews. which is crazy what did you think of it
0: well well, I was yeah so basically what happened was yeah there was this guy this engineer who was in the in the space every day with this amazing contraption there were cables everywhere it was extremely high tech and then there was this kind of conveyor belt runway thing and then yeah every day you'd go down into that space and you say how you doing how's it going you know the curators obviously were just going down every day checking on how it was going and always there was this yeah well maybe we might have a flight tomorrow but never not one single single plane flew so for months this contraption was in the Duveen galleries at the tate gallery before it became Tate Britain, before Tate modern opened. so yeah it was a you know so sort of one of the last international modern art projects at tate gallery as it was but yeah never flew never happened but that's sort of part of the radicalism of of burden isn't it he wanted to test institutions effectively
4: yeah. I mean, and in that case, I think he actually wanted it to work, you know, wanted to get this contraption moving and working. And the director of his estate said that the major problem at the time was lack of open code, lack of software available to program it. And that now that we have so much more code available, open source, that it's much more feasible to do. So they're working on that. They've been working on that for a number of years. It's not in the book because it was realized in some form, but it's something that I was able to ask about. And so the estate has been working with a gallery with Gagosian. And Larry Gagosian told me that they don't have an exact timeline, but he's really hopeful that these little planes will be flying by the end of the year. He would like to show it at the Marciano Foundation space in L.A., which he has been using for special projects.
0: How interesting. What's your conclusion from reading this about Bird and the artist? Do you have a different take on him now that you've read about the unrealized projects as opposed to what you know of what exists?
4: The art historian who co-edited the book had a really nice take on it, that she said basically she thinks that we have more direct access through this book and through these unrealized projects to his imagination, And you do, you just feel closer to him, knowing what he was thinking about. I think what surprised me were the number of projects he went back to throughout his career, that he was remarkably consistent in his interests in transportation, in energy, in systems. And so there are some projects that he's gone back to every five years in a different form And, you know, I see that with other artists who are ahead of their time in terms of the technology and artists like Lynn Hirschman, who was trying to build AI, you know, she did a version of Siri before Siri. Every two or three years, she would try a different iteration until the technology caught up to her. And so it's interesting to see that for all that he was able to build, Chris Burden was also pushing at the edge of what could be built, could be built safely and could be built with the technology of the time.
0: Jory, thank you so much for telling us about
4: this book. Thank you, Ben.
0: Poetic Practical, the unrealised work of Chris Burden is published by Gagosian and priced $120. And finally, it's time for work of the week. The Barbican Art Gallery in London this week opened post-war modern. New art in Britain, 1945 to 65. And among the show's key artists is Francis Newton Souza, the artist born in Goa in India in 1924, who lived and worked in London between 1949 and 1964 before moving to New York. Among Sousa's paintings in the show is Mr. Sebastian, made in 1955. And Jane Allison, the curator of the exhibition, told me about the painting. Jane, in your essay in the catalogue for Post War Modern, you say that FN Souza is one of the artists who most embodies a post war attitude. What do you mean by that?
5: I mean, his work is full of sort of passion, it's visceral, you know, it's angry, it's a search for meaning, it's vulnerable. I, I talk about an off kilterness in the kind of work. There's a power, there's a f- fragility. But yeah, this this kind of a seriousness, but the the works are filled with rage and uh, but also feeling. Complex artist, you know, much acclaimed in the period, and you know has been largely forgotten or perhaps being rediscovered now. But the works in the show, we have three incredible works. His Mister Sebastian from 1955 was part of a sellout show in 1955 at Victor Musgrave's Gallery One. And it's just extraordinarily powerful. I mean, it just stands up against any other work in the show. We borrowed it from India. So it's, it's essentially a self-portrait. It's got all the hallmarks of, you know, suffering and resilience which come through in the work. I mean, so this is this is himself as Saint Sebastian. It's the most kind of extraordinary self-portrait that anybody is ever going to see so he's got this kind of paddle-shaped head he's got eyes in the top of his brow and that's the way he painted himself all the time and, and a lot of other people as well and Stuart Hall said that this new wave of artists who came from the colonies of the Commonwealth in 1948 and afterwards were a generation who wanted to you know, claim modernism. They wanted to come to Britain and they wanted to conquer it. And, you know, Sousa exemplifies all of that. So he talked about, you know, eyes in the brow, the better to see with the brain. So that's a kind of, you know, hypervigilance, a kind of wary, attitudinal, this idea of conquering. And, you know, to some extent, you know, this Saint Sebastian is wearing a suit like a straitjacket, you know, And there's a wonderful connection across the space with, of course, Bacon's Men in Suits at Lone Men in Bars. But here's Sousa wearing a suit and tie, you know, poking fun at British conformity, but equally talking about his own struggle to sort of to fit in. I mean, he didn't want to conform, but the the struggle for colonial subjects, as they were, who came to Britain, dealing with this sort of sense of displacement, sort of a defiant otherness, a self designed otherness, you know, that was an act of defiance and a sort of, here I am. What
0: makes him identify with Saint Sebastian so much? Because he had a complex relationship with religion more generally, didn't he?
5: Well, he did. He he identified with the suffering, essentially, of Saint Sebastian. I mean, he was brought up in Catholic Portuguese Goa and the Jesuit school in Bombay. And, yeah, it was just, you know, having brought up on this this rich imagery of Christian martyrdom, which, of course, he wasn't a believer. I mean, he was a a communist in India, not a believer at all, but strongly identified with the suffering of St. Sebastian and indeed Christ. So, you know, among his most well-known portraits were, were also crucifixion portraits. So, yeah, it was a kind of an alter ego and that—that's really
0: stressed in the catalogue. There's an image of the catalogue for the show in which Mr. Sebastian was shown in your book, in your catalogue, mm. in which it's actually a photographic self-portrait of Souza, but with, right. with collaged elements with these teeth. So his yeah, identification is yeah. really writ large in that too, isn't it? Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. Another signature of this—this this painting is like a, the clenched teeth, and and you know Souza talked about you know how. Being brought up as a, a Christian in colonial Goa kind of minced his words. I mean, you know, that it, he was speaking in a language which was other to him. And, you know, this difficulty in speaking, actually, he was extraordinarily articulate and poetic and, you know, wrote a lot of, you know, highly kind of imaginative work. But he just he shows himself, and this is fascinating from a psychological view, with these kind of clenched teeth. You know, which is also a kind of anger, you know, it's a sort of held in anger. I'm used on the fact that with Bacon, you get the kind of screaming mouth and with, with Susa, you get the clenched teeth. Susa said, the grinding of the teeth is not in the day of resurrection, but today. So in other words, he's talking about the angst now. So in combination, the, you know, the painting is extraordinarily powerful so he had smallpox as a child as well so arrows in the neck like flies mean affliction stars in the face are the scars of smallpox and and there is across post-war modern this kind of collapsing of personal and universal suffering that this painting embodies as in so many other works in the show I mean and, and I think that painting stands up incredibly well against any bacon for instance and I mean you know uh, that's not to do Dan bacon I'm a massive massive fan it's just extraordinarily powerful
0: indeed it is tell me more about the the scene in which sosa was part when he made this painting, because there were a number of progressive galleries that are showing the work at this time. Yeah, but also there is a disillusionment which you write about in the catalogue in terms of the British art scene and its possibilities for artists, in the sense that you know that there is undeniable prejudice within the culture.
5: Yes, yes. Well, I often say that that art is a common ground, and these artists did mix. Uh, You know, when I'm saying these artists, what I mean is in answer to your question, migrant artists who came to this country with great hope and optimism and and wanting to be part of a nascent modernist vanguard scene. Within the community of of the art world, they were largely accepted. and, And Victor Musgrave in Gallery One, this was incredibly important because he showed a lot of these artists, including Sousa. And, you know, we know, for instance, that Francis Newton-Souza, you know, was mixing with, with Bacon, went to the colony rooms. You know, was a sensation at the time. It was a sell-out show in 55. So he was acclaimed and he was written about and, you know, a lot of interest in his work. But he was very aware of racism within society, which was, you know, impossible to not see. And the struggle is he... Writes about of kind of fitting in within, I think, this broader society. Um, And then increasingly, I guess there was disillusionment with artists like him being, you know, kind of sectioned off, you know, and people not really quite knowing how to respond to the work. I mean, there were some people obviously that did, but this kind of exoticization of the work or, you know, not really accepting it as part of this modernism and international modernism but sort of only seeing the kind of exotic strangeness in that. I guess there's an element of that. So, you know, he, he wrote quite a lot about feeling, you know, the sort of gloominess of London, austerity, how difficult it was to kind of adapt. And then, you know, eventually he left for the States in the early 60s.
0: I wanted to ask you also about the common ground that many artists had in that time in terms of their response to Picasso, because Sousa was completely obsessed with Picasso, right?
5: Yes, he was. You can see that in the work. And it's interesting to think that also Francis Bacon was equally Picasso was the figure to to look at for that kind of inventive, you know, anarchic figuration that you get. But what is interesting, I guess, in relation to Sousa's work, and indeed Bacon's, is the interest in in monochrome abstraction. I mean, so, you know, I'm thinking now particularly of Sousa, you know, like he was a big fan of Eve Klein. And so that interest in the monochrome and this fusing of figuration and abstraction that you get in Sousa's work in some cases, like in 65, he did this whole exhibition of entirely black, paintings that are also figurative mm. and you get that to some extent Bacon too I mean I don't want to make this all about Bacon and Sousa together because he you know but that sort of fusion in other words like what I would call a sort of modernist figuration an avant-garde figuration yeah. that David Sylvester was promoting as well at that time.
0: Absolutely. And, and you really see the kind of that balance of the kind of vigorous abstract language and that directness, that sort of almost brutal figuration in, in Mr. Sebastian, don't you, with mm. the, the arrows particularly have that kind of brilliant kind of geometry about them. Yes. And, and also the kind of way that Sousa describes his own face is this incredibly direct form. So you've got that kind of aggressive, yes. formal power, yes. but also an undeniable figurative power.
5: Yes, absolutely. I mean, formally very controlled, but also figuratively extraordinary. So, yes, you're absolutely right. And this kind of flat up to the picture plane, you know, single figure, you know, there's not anything else going on much apart from this, the extraordinary painting, the composition and the figure. I mean, so, you know, it's singled out. And I, I talk a lot, you know, in the exhibition about the survivor body. For me, the injured survivor body the suffering body reimagined and resilient is the most powerful uh, subject symbol within the entire exhibition. I think it's everywhere. And Mr. Sebastian, for me, sort of absolutely exemplifies that.
0: You talk about this idea that obviously in the kind of aftermath of the horrors of the second world war after hiroshima after the holocaust and everything else painters are using painting as a means to survive as a means to fundamentally respond yes but also as a kind of survival mechanism right
5: absolutely i think it was a a terrain of healing susa said i paint in order to exist you know Auerbach said it's my form of action bacon talks about deepening the mystery i mean everywhere there's this kind of make art to survive. And, and I think that the artwork from this period is extraordinarily revealing. Uh, uh, you know, in, in a society where there was a kind of amnesia about what had happened and what was happening. And it's a desire to focus on, you know, reconstruction and, and to sort of bury trauma. And I think it comes out in the work.
0: Jane, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
5: Thank you. Thanks very much, Ben.
0: Post-War Modern is at the Barbican Art Gallery in London until the 26th of June. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Benthel and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Svitlana, Tom and Mark, Jory and Jay. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now.